1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Miriam Kalman-Frieden about her new book, Rivers of Life, The Life of Claire
2: Myers-Owen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Nothing I like better than talking about Claire.
1: I am so glad you're here and that we get to talk about Rivers of Light. Um, listeners won't know, but between the pandemic and us being in totally different time zones, it has been a process to get you scheduled. So <laughs> and the anticipation has been building on my end for sure. Um, so I wonder if to start off, you could tell us about yourself, please.
2: Well, if, if anything, Claire's life was a journey and somehow mine was too, and maybe everyone's is. But I started out life for practical reasons. When I graduated high school, I became a dental hygienist of all things. Uh, it was a brand new possession, p- profession for women. I'm giving away my age, and I did that for about ten years. It's a two-year training back then. It was a two-year training, and I worked in a dental office until my thumb fell apart. My thumb literally came away from the rest of my hand. I woke up one morning and it was like like a, a foot away from the rest of my hand. And so that pretty much ended my career. I had uh, surgery and could not do dental hygiene with my right hand anymore. I also had a child in diapers. So it was quite an adventure trying to <laughs> diaper a baby and have a broken hand. Um, but I got through that and then I became very bored. I had two children and I thought, what am I going to do with my life? Who am I? And I actually told a friend, I called a friend one day and said, you know what? I'm just a table. And she came over, she woke her children up from a nap and came over to my house and said, I'm worried about you. You are not a table. We had a talk and she said, what do you want to be? And of all things, I said, I want to be a lamp. And oddly enough, After many, many years in this journey, I wrote a book called Rivers of Light. (laughs) So she said to me, are you a lamp now? And I said, I don't know. That's for others to decide. Um, I went back to school after I had two children and realized that the only way I was going to ever be a lamp was to go back to school. And so uh, I was very fortunate. UT Dallas, I was living in Dallas, had just opened. at a junior and senior level uh, after they they opened as a graduate school. It's a branch of University of Texas in Austin. It's now a huge school. But when I went back, there were 7,000 people, including the graduate school. And um, I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which was molecular biology, because with two small children, I couldn't be gone long enough to take classes and labs. So I sat down And I looked at their catalog and realized that when other people laugh at Shakespeare plays, I never knew what was funny. So I went and enrolled in literature classes. And that's where I stayed. I got a bachelor's, a master's, and eventually a PhD. And um, after I got my bachelor's, I became enamored with gender studies, only it was called women's studies then. And they didn't have a women's studies program. It was still a very small uh, university. Uh, it was very close. Uh, you could pretty much design your own way within the parameters that they, uh, they had set up. And uh, I read Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. And that changed my life. I grew up in a family of boys. I was the oldest of, six, of five boys, six children. A blended family after my father died when I was young, and so Virginia Woolf's ideas really rang true for me—the idea of privacy, uh, of of having value as a girl, as a woman—and uh, so that led me to a passionate investigation of what was going on in women's studies, and I had professors that guided me along, and I was able to write my papers with that in mind and design my courses with that in mind. And I ended up teaching that way, uh, taking American Lit uh, and teaching it as American Lit, but also always with an, with a mind of how do women fit into all of this. So that was mainly, that, that was my journey uh, that got me to where I would end up writing about an unknown woman. And that is
1: a fascinating journey. It makes me have to ask, though, how much Shakespeare did you get to go study? Oh,
2: no. I, and that became so unimportant. <laughs> okay. I took one class. I loved it. But but that was not my path. My passion actually was, was uh, before I discovered the women's studies key, uh, was narrative uh, experimental fiction, uh, avant-garde, surrealism, um, Faulkner and his crazy narratives that you had to puzzle together. Um, I loved the creativity of changing what a novel was. Um, and then I started, I wrote some fiction because a friend of mine said, Hey, there's a cute new fiction professor. Let's go take his course. And I said, Oh my goodness, I could never write fiction. And she said, well, you're going to, and uh, so then I got interested in, in creative writing as well. We went and took that together and and we both uh, have stayed with that.
1: And that really leads to my next question, which is what inspired you to write this book? I know that the introduction goes through this fabulous story of how you happened to find out
2: mm-hmm.
1: about Claire and become inspired to work on her, but please share that with the
2: listeners. Well, first of all, I was introduced in the first women's studies course I took. It wasn't exactly women's studies, but sort of. Uh, We read Kate Chopin's The Awakening, and we read Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. And most of your listeners, if they're interested in women's lit, they've started with that. Those were two monumental, rediscovered novels and especially the way that Elaine Hedges introduced The Yellow Wallpaper. Um, And I said, wait, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to rediscover an unknown woman writer. And by then I'd gotten my master's degree, and my thesis was on unsung heroines. And um, so I was already looking at what do we need to know about women that we don't know. And why don't we know them? And what is heroic? What is courage? What is courage if you're a woman? We know what it is when you're a man. You go off to war. You go hunting. You uh, fight big fish and (laughs) pull them into your little boat. You do all kinds of uh, physical adventures. But what is courage when you're a woman? Is it raising a child? Well, anybody that's done that knows it is. Um, but we don't know it when we go into it. We, we think it's, you, you know, it's kind of idealized. So what is courage? So that was part of my, my motivation. After I wrote my master's thesis, uh, I set out to find an unknown woman writer to rediscover. I literally knew that's what I wanted to do. And it took a couple years. Um, I believe in synchronicity. I believe that, uh, Things don't just happen. Coincidences kind of lead you to where you want to be. And, um, and I did see, I, I was doing book reviews for a very small publication in Dallas. Um, and I came across a book and I knew one of the authors. And I saw that she had been doing research at Texas Women's University. My university was University of Texas in Dallas. So Texas Women's is in Denton. I called this, uh, this woman. I knew she was an acquaintance. She was not a friend. But I tracked her down uh, through our synagogue, believe it or not, and found where she was living. And she said, go to Texas Women's University. Call first. Make an appointment with Elizabeth Snap. And Elizabeth was the director of libraries, and she had set up, a women's archive, and it was co- the process of collecting papers, uh, women's papers. Sarah T. uses in there the entire women's Air Force organization, uh, all of their papers, all of their meetings, all of their biographies are in this archive. And it was it was pretty new when I found it, so um, I called uh, Elizabeth, made an appointment, and. Uh, went over there, and so that part of the introduction is in my, um, I'm trying to turn off my phone, Um, that part of the, is in the introduction, how Elizabeth and I met, and what the archive was like at the time, and this beautiful portrait was hanging in her office, and that portrait, a detail, it's blown up, is the cover of the book. But that portrait spoke to me. I couldn't stop. I didn't even hear what she said once my eyes rested on this beautiful pastel painting. And it was almost felt like this woman had been waiting for me to show up. And um, so then I asked if I could see her paper. She she saw me looking at it. And she said, that's Claire Myers-Owens. And she told me she'd had a book that was banned in New York in 1935 well, any feminist writer, any study of gen- anyone studying gender knows that if there's anything that's interesting that women don't need to know, it gets banned. And that means you need to know it. Uh, the powers that be don't want you to know it, but you need to know it. And I knew that. I jumped out of my chair. Um, and then she told me why I couldn't see her archive. It had not been fully uh, processed. There were 80 boxes um, sitting there, and there were 11 of those had been processed at the time. And I said, it's a wonder she didn't throw me out of her office right that minute. I said, oh, I like to work in chaos. That's okay. I can look at it. It doesn't have to be processed. Well, anyone who's ever worked in an archive knows that's not possible. It has to be processed. Because otherwise, you could walk off with anything in there. Um, Exactly. Archives are very formal places. Uh, You make a big mess out of the formalities, but there are certain guidelines for working in an archive. And uh, I had to learn that. Um, So Elizabeth tried to interest me in other people, but I couldn't even hear what she was saying. And when I left, it felt like Claire went with me. It felt like there was an actual presence in the car next to me. And I dreamed about her that night. And the next day I called Elizabeth and she said yes. And years later she told me that she felt Claire's presence too. And that, pres- that Claire said no, she's the one. She was hoping for someone who already had a PhD and actually she thought the best person to write it would be a person with a Ph.D. in philosophy. But I was the one. I was chosen by Claire. I, She had been gone from this planet uh, for four years when I found her work. and um, But it was meant to be. And, and she just, my friends thought, I talked about her like she was still alive and, and that I actually knew her. My, I would say, Claire said this, and someone would tell me something. And I'd say, well, I'll tell you what Claire would say. And I had just barely touched the surface by then. Um, so that was the beginning. So how
1: did it work out with the archive then, between their protocols and that all the materials weren't cataloged? Did she sort of catalog things as you picked it up and said, I'm going to need to work on this? So she rushed to catalog it? or
2: No, that... no, she let me look at the first 11 boxes, um, had her diaries in it, and had lots of letters. When I looked at the catalog for her, for her archive, um, those 11 boxes, I saw all kinds of letters, and I realized that she communicated with some very significant people. Uh, Carl Jung, for one, uh, Albert Schweitzer, and then all kinds of people I'd never heard of, but I could tell once I got to read the letters Uh, What a serious and adventurous person she was, and um, uh, how brave she was. What is courage? Um, So I I read everything that was in the archive, and then I don't know what other people do when they come to an impasse. I'd read everything, now what do I do? So I started walking in circles on the second floor of the library where the archive is, there's also a women's collection and then the regular rest of other stuff in the, on the second floor. And I just started walking, walking, walking in circles in anywhere, up and down through the stacks. And I came to a table with a, with a newspaper on it, the Women's Review of Books, which I knew about. It's a, it's a you know special periodical that reviews only women's books primarily nonfiction. Um, and in it was an ad for a women's institute in London. Uh, and there was going to be a, a seminar, a two week seminar, four weeks, two weeks on diaries and letters and two weeks on biography and autobiography. Well, it couldn't have been more perfect. Uh, I didn't really have the money to go to London and stay for four weeks. Uh, at a women's institute, but I knew that's what I had to do. And I remembered reading about Sally Bingham in a Ms. magazine. I had tucked that away in my brain. I found the magazine. I'd kept it. And Sally Bingham is from from, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and she runs a women's foundation. And I wrote a letter and told her about this institute And her secretary called me and said, send us a list of your expenses. I had no idea what my expenses would be other than the tuition. But I did some research and figured it out and asked for a certain amount of money. And she sent me a check, Um, a check. And I went to London. And we get there and there's about 11 people in the seminar and Dale Spender. And if anyone listening doesn't know who Dale Spender is, go find her now. She is the most remarkable Australian feminist. She's delightful. She's brilliant. She writes books that will wear your eyes out, 700-page books with tiny print, with every minute, every word is just wonderful. And I got to study with her for four weeks. But the first day that we met, there was a group of us, and um, we were sitting, we were supposed to introduce ourselves. And I said, Well, I'm here on a Kentucky Women's Foundation uh, grant, and here's why I'm here. And at the break, a woman came over to me, and she had said she was there for Kentucky Women's Foundation. And she came over to me, I don't remember her name, Frances something. And she said, you're not here on a, women's stu- on a Kentucky Women's Foundation, Grant. And I said, I'm not? Uh, and she said, no, you, you have to live in Kentucky or one of the states that touches Kentucky, one of, the, one of the border states. And they have a banquet, and you get an award and a plaque and a check, and you're, you're not any of those things. And I went, but that's how I'm here. And she looked at me and she said, I think Sally Bingham sent you a check out of her personal account because that's oh. not how it works. So if you don't think Claire was maneuvering that from above.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what was the Kentucky connection because as a fellow scholar who, you know, knows what it's like to try to find fellowships and grants for uh, mm-hmm. projects there are very specific connections you have to have to these different organizations. They they found specific regions or people from specific regions yeah. or projects about specific mm-hmm. areas or topics. And I, as I was listening, I was thinking, where is the Kentucky connection between you <laughs> and, and your subject and any of the places that she lived, any of the things she wrote about? I was kind of head scratching. So we cleared that up.
2: We did. It was just kind of a miracle. And, uh, I sat through those four weeks. It was wonderful. I'd never been to Europe. Um, I did go to, I saved some of the money, enough of it to go to Paris from there. I took the boat train a la Hemingway. Um, so that, that, that is something I would not recommend, but it was part of my adventure. And um, I got what I needed. And, and we, we'd get 15 minutes each session. Every two weeks, you'd get 15 minutes personal interview with Dale spender she was a busy woman still you know writing when she wasn't teaching us and so I made my list of questions and one of the things she said is what you do next is you write a paper you get it into a conference you give that paper and then you get it published and that's the beginning of how you're gonna get to uh, republish this this banned book from from 1935. That was my goal. I may have forgotten to say that. My that was goal, the original
1: goal was to republish the band book.
2: Yes. The band so book can
1: you was tell us the title of the band The book.
2: Unpredictable Adventure, A Comedy of Women's Independence. The story of a, it's the story of a grand Amaroos. Who knows what a grand Amaroos is? Um, I certainly didn't, but anyway, that was, I had read the book. I was able to read the book in the archive, uh, but I couldn't take it out. I couldn't leave with it. And so I read the book and all of her letters. And that was all I had. But I went back. And that, out of that, I wrote a, a, a paper. And I got to give it at National Women's Studies uh, Conference. And that was, uh, I think it was 1989, quite a while back. Um, it was at Towson University that year. The people I met, I'm still in touch with many of them, especially one, a Dr. Janet Friedman, and I bonded in line registering for that conference, and are still friends. She's a scholar in residence at Brandeis. Um, so many wonderful things came out of that. I marched down after I gave the paper to the book exhibit. I found a a, a now defunct uh, newsletter periodical called a uh, bell Lettre, and they published it and right after they published it syracuse university called me and asked if they could republish the unpredictable adventure i thought publishing was easy <laughs> it never happened that way again <laughs> as anyone who's published knows that just doesn't happen but it did the first time and um they are wonderful to work with. They also published, um, years later, The Unpredictable Adventure. I mean, The uh, Rivers of Light. But, um, but that was the first step. I wrote the introduction, the preface, an afterword, and a glossary to The Unpredictable Adventure. The glossary is because it's written uh, with lots of anagrams and wordplay and uh, puzzles. It's a fantasy adventure of self-discovery.
1: And you reference that book in Rivers of Light. And we should remind listeners that River of Light is uh, the, the biography of the whole life of Claire Meyer Owen. So it covers from when she was a child all the way through her whole entire life. And in the process of researching about her, you also first did this book where you reprinted one of her out-of-print books. Uh, and that book that we're talking about now um, had all of these word puzzles in it that you mentioned in rivers of light that drove people so bananas that they would, they would call her and they'd say, <laughs> you have to tell me this is driving me crazy. I can't solve this world pu- word puzzle. What's the answer? Or they'd, they'd send her letters,
2: mm-hmm. the letters, you know, i worry about about what is going to happen. How are biographers going to write biography without letters? And we don't write letters and emails are temporary. Uh, tw- Of course, tweeting is even more temporary. Um, But it's all, none of it's going to be in an archive. And I don't know how you write a biography without letters. Uh, But yeah, there were letters, please tell me. And of course, letters took a long time and some came from overseas. She had met people in uh, London and Paris as a young woman. And so her book did find its way. But it didn't go very far. The Unpredictable Adventure was banned. It was written up as a ban. It was published by Doubleday, and Burton Rasko was her editor, who was a, a famous editor. Um, but uh, people would, would un- try to unscramble. It wasn't easy. She, she was a messy writer. She had arthritis, even at a young age, and it was hard to read her handwriting. And typing was <laughs> kind of an interesting you know typing is not like computer typing um so there were it was on onion skin paper and erasable paper, oh my goodness, but anyway, she um I had these letters asking how to unscramble these words, and I had to unscramble some that had never been actually um. Uh, in writing figured out. So, uh, I had to work on those. I'm not real good at unscr- I'm not good at word games, but, uh, but I did it and I made a glossary and people helped me. And, um, I knew I had to have a glossary for readers today because we have television, we have other things uh, that entertain us. People don't have that kind of patience anymore.
1: You also didn't want all the phone calls from the desk.
2: <laughs> right. Especially because it would be used more in an academic setting. I think I fi- figured it would be. Um,
1: go ahead. And so after you finished that project, you weren't done with Claire. So what, what made you keep going to write rivers of light? Cause rivers of light is over 400 pages long. And that's just the part that got published when people write a book they write far more than ends up in the final copy. So you, you spent ample amount of time with her and you, you found so much more to write about her. But what compelled you to keep going? Because after you did that first project, one could arguably say, well, well, you fulfilled whatever that energy was that Claire was sending your way and telling you she wanted to be revived. you have done it.
2: I had. Um, I didn't expect to ever write a biography of her. Uh, one, a couple of things happened. When uh, Elizabeth Snap found out that I had a publisher to republish Unpredictable Adventures, she went out. She's a magnificent woman. She is, I I could write a biography of her. I I, I wish I could. Um, She's wonderful. She went out and found the money to finish uh, processing the archive, all 80 boxes. She trusted me to go back into the stacks with her into the archive. And we did plow through some of the boxes together. Uh, she had a raspberry gown that was very much written about in her writings. And I and I do talk about that in the book, her raspberry gown and all the men that wanted her to wear this this evening gown. Um, so while I was writing the, the afterword, we were playing around in the archive and she was drumming up money to get it fully processed. So that happened. And I gave lots of papers. I, I really worked with this book for, for several years, not expecting to do any more. I did readings around town. I did papers at conferences. I wrote articles. I did a lot of work with that just segment of her life. Um, at the same time, I was trying to make a little bit of a living, and I got involved in uh, working with battered women uh, in that movement of domestic violence and violence against women, and I published a book on, uh, on that subject. <laughs> so I didn't really expect to work on Claire again. But um, I wanted a job in a university and ended up deciding that I had to get a Ph.D., Um, That was the last thing on my mind, and yet it turned out to be what I needed to do next. And after I did the, I had most, I had a lot of the coursework already done. And, um, And when I went to my advisor, Nancy Tawana, who's no longer at UT Dallas, I had these two books. I had Unpredictable and I had This book on violence against women, it's an anthology of first-person writings uh, by women that I edited and I wrote all these different introductions. And she said, if you use that project as the basis for a dissertation, you'll have to work with two different departments, literature, humanities, where I was, and um, psychology, and you will never get a doctorate. (laughs) You will never be able to walk that tightrope between two departments in, in any university. And we were an, an interdisciplinary university. Um, so that that left me with Claire. And um, so I wrote the proposal and I went back to the archive. And by then I was working with a different director. Nancy had left. And my director was Tim Redman. And he is a biographer of Ezra Pound. So I had really good guidance, not in women's studies, but in biography. So those were my, my field became biography, autobiography, because Claire's, everything Claire ever wrote is autobiographical. And, um, and then creative writing and uh, feminism were my four subjects that I tested in. And they all kind of feed, feed into, not creative writing, I'm sorry, it was American history. So I had to learn a lot about Southern American history. And then since she spent her early life in Texas and and was raised to be a Southern belle, um, and then her later life was always in the Northeast. Uh, We haven't gone into her life and her journey. Um, I guess you have to read the book to do that, but she did live a very eclectic life. And um ended up in the northeast for most of it. <laughs> so Thank I think about elevator pitch
1: on rivers of light, just for listeners, so they feel caught up to this part of the story. What if you had to describe the rivers of light and and Claire's life in kind of a nutshell for Ooh,
2: the listeners? That's I
1: hard. know. I, know. Hardest <laughs> I, don't, project you've
2: <laughs> I don't know that I have an elevator speech for Claire 400 pages later. Um She started out being raised to be a Southern belle. She rejected all of that kind of domestic life. She was forced to to get a degree in domestic science when she wanted it to be in philosophy and literature. And so she left home at the age of 20 after she finished college. She went to TWU. That's why her papers are there. It It was called the College of Industrial Arts, I think, CIA, He'd never name a college CIA now. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and then she went and she worked in, as a social worker in the hills of of uh, Alabama at a coal mine camp, and that's part of her life, and that's in the book. And then she didn't find that very uh, satisfying. She she didn't really like being around people that uh, were uneducated and living as an underclass. Uh, she thought she did. She wanted to change the world overnight, but she that was not really her forte. She went to New York and did the same, uh, worked in social work and realized she couldn't do that and became just started working uh, in a bookstore and lived in Greenwich Village. And part of my project to do her biography was what we call walking in the footsteps and One icy winter, I took my journal and walked, went and found every place she lived in Manhattan. Many places; Uh, she moved around a lot. And then she met. She was she was married twice in 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 those years in Manhattan, and then those are really interesting marriages. I guess since you've read the book, you know that. And Rivers of Light was. I named the book "Rivers of Light" because she describes the moments while she's writing the unpredictable adventure during the part of her second marriage, um, where the the words seem to come out of the out of the out of the light above, out of the heavens, almost celestially, uh, into her head, and then through her head into her fingers, and. It's such a beautiful passage uh, that the words came to her like rivers of light. So she was a writer in Manhattan. Um, then she marries a man and they move to New Haven. And she has a great awakening experience, which you have to read the book to figure out that. Because that took me a long time to figure out. But because of it, it's a spiritual awakening. And she becomes part of the human potential and transpersonal psychology movements with Aldous Huxley and Abraham Maslow. She becomes a speaker in that field. Uh, One of her close colleagues is Jean Houston, who's still at it. Uh, Jean Houston has a big organization coming out out of California now, but she was in New York, and um, became a speaker in those circles, even though she wasn't educated to that. Uh, she had the experiences that these very prestigious men and women were writing about. She had actually experienced. And, uh, And then she became involved with this young group of Yale graduate students who needed a place to meditate. And she opened her home to them after her third husband died and got interested in Zen Buddhism and wound up moving with them to New Haven uh, to uh, Rochester, New York, becoming part of a Zen Buddhist community, and she stayed there for the rest of her life, so that's not quite an elevator, maybe an elevator in a very tall building.
1: you could use the Empire State Building
2: yeah <laughs> yeah, which was fairly new when she moved to New York. She was part of the new women new woman uh, society culture uh when she moved there in, in the 30s, in, in the 20s. So uh, she had quite an eclectic, exciting life. So again, uh, what is courage? What is a woman? What is a female heroine? There's so much about that in the, in the book too. Um, uh, and you can
1: kind of feel as the reader that you're grappling with those questions. In the opening you ask, you know, how do we designate women worthiness? And you say that there's a standard for writing a biography that there has to be some kind of achievement. And you quote one scholar as saying, you know, part of the task is making moderate achievement as important to the reader as it is to the subject. Were these all things that you're that came out of the PhD work you were doing? Were these? Questions of how to prove to your committee that this was a worthwhile biographical subject?
2: You know, that even goes back to working with Dale Spender and understanding, and I saw in your biography that you, uh, one of your quests is finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. And and so you and I parallel that. Uh, We connect there. Because that was always important, even when I wrote my master's thesis. What w- Women living ordinary lives, what is extraordinary about it? What is heroic about it? And so that is, it, I think that's the quest. I don't know that we have an answer. There's not one answer. Um, but it's redefining it, understanding what it really takes to have us. What is a successful life? Is, is it a woman who raises six children like my mother did? Uh, some of them hers, some of them that came out of a second marriage. Or is it, and I don't know, I mean, I I wouldn't even, I don't know. Um, or is it winning a Pulitzer or a Nobel Prize? Is it writing a great novel or raising a great kid? What What is success? What is, what is, you can't have success if you don't have courage, because you're going to fight the obstacles. Um, there's a pass. One of my favorite passages is when life, uh, when she talks about uh, wrestle with the old bitch, fight to the finish. Uh, that life will will challenge you, um, and she uses, you know, go forth and. Um, oh, I don't have the I don't have the quote anymore in my brain, but. It, it's like um, ordinary life is for puny people. We have to go out and, and wrestle for what we want. Um, I, I could look up the quote, but that's, this is not the time to do it. And it's in the book, it's in both books. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, I think that lessons are not elevator speeches, um, they are really tangling and untangling. Uh, she wrote other books. In her life, she wrote uh, once she had this great awakening. She wrote a book called "Awakening to the Good," and the subtitle is interesting: "It's psychological or religious?" Question mark ends with a question mark. So she's studying, and does she ever answer that? No, she doesn't answer it because there's not an answer. Uh, "Awakening to the Good" was the question. Is there anything good that we can find in humankind? What is good? And if I think if we were ever going to ponder that, it would be now with what's happening in our culture, the, the uh, very controversial election, the very controversial 2016 election, uh, everything that's going on in the news cycle, everything that's going on in the pandemic, um, we are searching for what is good, trying to define it. And do we find it in psychology or do we find it in religion? And so the seeds of those questions are definitely, they're even in her bi- in her little diaries when she was just a kid growing up. Um, and they're certainly throughout the biography, but they're embedded in almost every chapter of the unpredictable adventure. Um, These questions that followed her throughout her life.
1: And her whole life, she was a questioner. Um, You talk about how she had very few role models, and you say that she blazed her own path. And you show us how early on she was aware of that. And even if she wasn't able to put that fact into words, she was instinctively aware of it. And you have her when she's very young, around 1910, she writes a letter to the editor of the Ladies Home Journal, who also works as a palmist. And she sends her her own handprint to have it analyzed. And um, the editor writes back with her predictions based on this handprint that that Claire will be a writer, that she'll have an interest in self-help and the occult. And then she describes some personality traits uh, about Claire as well. And As I read on through the book, I I wondered, did this have such a strong impression on Claire that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy? Or was Claire just a person who was really, really seeking again and again? And as we see her go through her first marriage that did not work out and her second marriage that didn't either, she wasn't a person who looked at any of these events really as stopping points, but as places to keep going forward as she continued to keep seeking in life. And I, what I'm struck by in, in Claire's life and in this book is how she had to make her own path. And for people listening now, it, it certainly appears that the way forward is going to be a lot of people really trying to reinvent how they're going to do things and that she's a, she's a role model for that. You can rise from what seemed to be a disaster or a very unpredictable outf- outcome and find another way for yourself.
2: That That's a wonderful insight and a wonderful question. Uh, did it guide her? Uh, it guided me. I don't know if it, I don't know how much she remembered of that as she went through life, but, you know, unconsciously, I thought it was a wonderful palm reading. I've never had my palm read. I've had tarot cards. Um, that's such an interesting question it It certainly sent- a thread I pulled through as I was writing um she was a questioner from such an early age and such a rebel against the uh roles that were set out for women in in that time and and I think there's one place where I said she's dreaming of living in a skyscraper and she's living in temple, Texas, which was a, a where the streets were mostly mud um at the turn of the century, there were very few paved streets. There were horses and buggies, and when you when they did have a car, they had to get out and crank it up. Um, uh, it it it's like she came from such primitive uh, uh, beginnings, and a family that saw themselves as Southern uh, elite, and and it just didn't fit who she was. So she was always at odds with this, with her origins, but they were part of her as well. So part of her struggle was overcoming some of that elitism. Um, She, she was, is, uh, you know, the more I talk about her, the more remarkable I think she is. It's nice to revisit it this way. Um, You asked me an interesting question earlier about what didn't, What's not in the book? So since I wrote this originally as a dissertation, and it was a 400 double-spaced uh, manuscript, um, when I went back to do it as a, as a biography, um, I had to find a publisher. I went through hell doing that. Uh, lots of ups and downs before Syracuse actually took it after turning it down much earlier. Uh, they weren't doing that kind of thing. So when I finally started working with it, I had to transform it into something uh, that had less scholarship. It was, it was 10 years old by then, uh, maybe not quite, but um, it had sat around and there was new scholarship I had to put in. So after it was looked at by peer reviewers, I had to add 100 pages. Then I had to go back and cut 100 pages. So it's basically transformed uh, into something more more um, readable than a dissertation and also up to date in terms of the way we talk about white privilege instead of, of uh, talking about the Southern values, just to, to look at it more from a perspective of all of us as white privilege what is it that we... Who are we uh, growing up in a world if we're born white? And how does that affect our our view of the world, our philosophy? So I had a, a lot of re- revisioning to do. Um, I don't think anything was left out in terms of her... What's interesting about her life. You said, what are the stories that aren't in there? The mo- The most delightful and interesting story was that once she met these, after three marriages, um, once she met this young group of Yale graduate students, uh, she instantly, love at first sight, met a man named Dwayne Wilder, and they instantly connected. And And he's
1: the one who's 40 years younger than her? 40
2: years younger. He's still still around. I mean, of course, I sent him a copy of the book, I went. The first thing I did before I wrote the afterward to Unpredictable was go and interview these, this group of people in Rochester, uh, and we, we they used to have what they called the CMO T Claire Myers Owens and then T T E A, and they would sit around and celebrate her birthday on February 11th, and so they arranged it so that I could be there and join them for one of their birthdays. Uh, celebrations. And um, they don't do that anymore. Most of the those people, I mean, they've moved on from Claire, but at the time they were still really um, influenced by her and connect. She was sort of a catalyst that kept them all together, even after she died. Um, and so that was one of my questions is, is, you know, exactly what was the nature of this relationship? Was it a consummated relationship between a um, a man and, and a young man and a and an older woman? And so that's in the afterward and also in the in the biography, their relationship, what that really meant. and uh, And he said the most beautiful thing when he came to that tea, and I got to ask him, it was like a, it was, you know, here I am really struggling with this." And um, and he said, you know, when I laid eyes on her, she opened the door to her home. She said, he said, all I saw was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. I didn't see anything about age. It was just this moment of, wow. And he said, I thought if I were 10 years older, young, older or she were 10 years younger, we would have a raging affair. <laughs> Uh, and he didn't realize they were forty years apart, so um and they were both from Texas, interestingly, they had both moved on um, so I found that relationship <sighs> something unusual and beautiful. um what is love one of the one of the other questions that this book poses is, be a grand amorous. um in, in the unpredictable adventure she invents a mentor something she didn't have an aunt sophistica and um, uh, she is she doesn't have that kind of mentor in her real life so maybe she invents it so that she will have um, but the but the admonition is go out into the world and become a grand amoreuse so uh, that's another po- concept we must ponder when we look at this. What is a grand Amorese and does she become one? What do you think a grand Amorese is?
1: I think she did. I think all of her relationships were extremely unconventional. Um, The first marriage wasn't technically a legal marriage um, and she had uh, extramarital affairs she had <laughs> yeah she did. passionate love letter based affairs she had a, all kind all kinds of interesting relationships she really pursued so many different ways of having relationships and none of them were really mirrors of each other each one was its own unique way that she went about it at least my reading of, of the book um, and so I think she did I think she deeply considered the ways that you you um, you give the intimate parts of yourself to someone else. And in some of those cases, there was no what we think of as physical intimacy, really. Um, But she was very interested in, in creative understandings of what love and emotion was. So I think in her, if we were able to ask her, I think she would say, yes, she was.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's not, I think, I was thinking about it before we, we spoke this morning. You know, what is a grant? I hadn't really come up with an answer until I thought about it today. And, and I realized that it's not, I mean, Claire's whole life was so entangled with men. Uh, she transformed in front of men, but she was very close to women. Uh, she was a wonderful friend to women, a lifelong friend. Um, but is it just relationships or is it something bigger? is a grand amorous someone who loves life with all of its ups and downs its challenges its obstacles its painful di- disappointments I, I mean her life with george wanders was basically a, a, a life of domestic violence a, a life with a man who had a narcissistic personality and a mother complex and was a brutally painful that that section I called Parallel Letters, Parallel Lives really delves into domestic violence. How do you come out of that? And she she genuinely loved this man. Um, how do you come out of that and still love life? Uh, and so I I came to understand today that perhaps a grand Amariz is one who embraces even the pandemics of life, even 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 the, the hardest parts make us who we are uh, can we integrate those desperately painful moments and come out smiling and in love with the world
1: I wondered if it also you know, she was interested in psychology she was interested in, in spiritual matters and when you delve into that there's a there's a mandate to really know and love yourself which is, arguably one of the hardest loves to come by, to not be the narcissist of the, the one husband, not that kind of love, but a genuine self-acceptance, self-exploration, self-knowledge, and a peace and love of what that is in your life. And I think that's something that she, she was always on a quest to be able to do.
2: That's profoundly true. She, from the beginning... Uh, Her, her life was a search for self and it helps us search for ourselves when we read about how she goes about it. Uh, I think she accepts what comes and then keeps going that wrestle with the old bitch fight to the finish. Um, I love that part where throw yourself into life um, and, and, and. Don't be a puny person. Be a grand Amaroos. Uh I, I, thought, I think that's what attracted me to her in the first place, beyond the portrait. When I started reading The Unpredictable Adventure, uh, there, was, there was that quest. And also, we didn't get into this earlier, but the dichotomy between uh, the parts of a woman that are the feminine and the parts that are intellectual and how that was divided. And, of course, you're a student of gender. People listening are students often of gender. Uh, we are still grappling with that, fighting for to be a, a a woman of color and ethnicities. And a woman as a vice president. Um, could Claire have imagined that? Well, I think she could have imagined it and not expected it. Um, so, yeah, we're still trying to put those two together. And it, in in The Unpredictable Adventure, there's a moment where she's the first, right, when she first goes to college, where she splits. And I've never seen that in, in literature. That was one of the things that attracted me to the book, was that the, here's this persona, Tina, the intellectual woman. And suddenly... A part of her breaks free and goes and flirts with, with a man, a young boy, a man, a college kid. And she says, Claire says to her, uh, Teletina says to her, who are you and why are you part of me? And she says, I'm Femina uh, and you're, you know, you're just a boring intellectual part. I'm the one that loves fun. So can we be both? things at once. And I think maybe that's maybe that's the, the lesson of the 20th century that we get to live out in the 21st. What do you think?
1: I'm definitely hopeful for that.
2: Yeah that's for sure. Yeah.
1: I wish that we had another hour to keep talking about this because there is so much in the book that we have only just touched on, but I know that listeners will be inspired to get a copy and read it. I want to thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Miriam Kalman Friedman, to tell us about your book, Rivers of Light, The Life of Claire Meyer Owens. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to the Gender Channel on New Books Network. Please join us again.